Okay, well, um, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 14, and this is the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and uh, he is traveling with his buddy Barnabas, and we are traveling now to southern Turkey. Um, That doesn't seem like it's very far from Jerusalem or where we're used to uh, Bible stories coming from, but uh, it's a ways away, and they have traveled through Cyprus, and now they have moved back up into southern Turkey, and they are in um, areas that are populated with synagogues, and that's where the Jews would receive instruction and worship. And now they are also in areas where the Greeks live, and they've moved into the world of polytheism. And the world of polytheism was dominated uh, by the Greek thoughts about the gods and the Roman thoughts about the gods. And there is some parallels in actually exchanging of names between uh, some of the gods. So... We are in a unique time where the gospel is going to the nations. We are approximately 44 A.D., 45 A.D., okay? So uh, about, you know, 12, 13 years or so after uh, Christ uh, lived. And so now we are into this remarkable time where there will be a number of missionary journeys accomplished by Paul and his companions. Now, this text before us is, uh, the first one takes place in Iconium, and uh, they, a number of people believe. And then the, the Jews stir up uh, bitterness and uh, begin to... Uh, move the people against Paul, and there are threats to his life and Barnabas's life, and so they head out to a place called Lystra. And this is, again, in a region of southwest Turkey that we would call today. There's a, a fairly standard, if you could call it this way, a standard miracle where someone who can't walk Uh, We saw this in Peter, with Peter in Acts chapter 4, a a gentleman in front of the the temple. Someone can't walk. Peter looks at him and says, in the name of Jesus, stand and walk. And that creates a whole platform for the gospel to be preached. And here we have Paul doing the same thing with a man who has never walked in his life, and he is is miraculously healed. Now this... uh, causes quite an uproar with, uh, and excitement uh, with the people of, of, of Lystra. And they respond by exclaiming that the gods have, have become among us. The gods are with us. And they attribute to uh, Barnabas that he is he's the embodiment of Zeus. By the way, Zeus is kind of like the king of all the gods. That's not that. And Paul, because he is the speaker, he is said to be Hermes. 
And then there's a priest over the, uh, over the, the temple of Zeus that existed in this area. And the priest goes off, and he gets a couple of oxen and begins to prepare them to be sacrificed. And the people are exclaiming that, again, the divine has now made an encounter with, with us. To which Paul and Barnabas grabbed their garments in the, uh, the fashion of, a, of Jewish tradition in the face of, of, of blasphemy. They grab their garments and they tear them. And this is a signal to the people, and apparently uh, we're thinking that they, they seem to have quieted down. And then Paul gives a short sermon, or at least Luke records uh, for us a, a rather short, short sermon. Now what's unique about Paul's sermon is that there's no mention of Jesus. Um, there's no mention of the gospel. And what he does is he begins to appeal to them and says, look, we are just mere mortals like you, but we're here to testify to you that you should turn from such vain things, meaning Greek mythology and idolatry, you should turn from such vain things to the living God. So this is a case study on how the Apostle Paul would speak to non-Jewish audiences. He appeals to them for what's called general revelation, that they are the recipients of knowledge about God, but this knowledge about God doesn't come from the Bible. It comes through what has been made. And so he speaks to them and says, God has provided for you fruitful seasons. He has provided for you a regular way to count on things that are growing. God has provided for you sustenance. In fact, he has provided for you things that you eat and consume and make your heart glad. God has been testifying or witnessing to you about his existence through the regularity and the consistency of crops, fruit, vegetables. God is communicating to you his goodness. And so what Paul is doing is he is moving them away from this world, this very strange world where you can't quite be sure of what's going on. In a world of multiple gods, you're never really sure who's in charge. You're never really quite sure how things, uh, is there anything reliable to count on? So the Apostle Paul is moving them away from this sort of frightening world of superstition and an apprehensive view of life to a consistent under, a, an understanding of how God has been faithful to them in consistency. So moving to an understanding of the living God. 
Now, this is a profound moment in, uh, in Western history, and it will be emphasized, uh, this kind of speech will be emphasized again to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. When we think about the idea of a universe, not a multiverse, but a universe, um, that's a biblical idea. That's the one true living God who has made a way of, of, this, of the, the laws of nature, the, the way this world works, is all working in concert in, together for his purposes, and he is sending a message through the consistency of nature, of his reliability, of his goodness, and of his faithfulness. So what's being contrasted here is the world of the, the mythological gods and the true and living God. For instance, um, Hermes is very interesting. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen some of these Greek statues where one, one particular uh, of the gods, he's wearing sandals with wings on them, if you ever noticed that, but that is Hermes. Hermes is the messenger. He's the one who travels from the gods to interact with mortals. He's the one who communicates between these two worlds, the divine world and the mortal world. Hermes is the messenger of the gods. He's also the one who is the guide to the underworld. But if you have Hermes interacting for you, or if you, if you are appealing to him, or you're making sacrifices to him, and he works on your behalf, communicating your needs, you might just be in for some luck. He might be able to communicate to the particular God who can help you, your needs. So, this is a contrast between these two different worlds. There's the world of the mythological Greek gods and the world of the true and living God of the Bible. And so as this, as this unfolds, we have a very short message from Paul about the call to turn away from vain things and to turn to the true and living God. And really, that's this particular section in, uh, in chapter 14, that's, that's the end of it. And it's an introduction to what I would call is, we'd call pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism is the task that, an, that a Christian would take in order to build a bridge with a non-Christian to build a bridge, or at least to uh, build a rapport between the non-Christian and the Christian, because we have common things. We have many things in common. We share a knowledge of God's goodness. We share a knowledge of God's kindness. And so as we think about our pre-evangelism, what it really is, it's conversations about how God has blessed us, conversations about how God has been good to us, 
conversations that begin to open the mind to understanding more fully and truly who it is that we are, who, who's, the, who's the invisible hand behind my life? I don't know how many of you have uh, perhaps seen this in, in, in the lives of other people. Um, I have observed this, and I don't know if I'm 100% accurate on this, but here's an observation I have. And I know that uh, I think everybody here is an accomplished uh, person in your task or field or profession. You, uh, you, You work with people who are similar to you. Um... They are diligent, they are responsible, they, um, they get it done. But after a few years of that, or a few decades of that, a person begins to realize that the things they enjoy in life are not always related to how diligent they were. The, the benefits they have in life are not always related to their good education. The benefits they have in life are not always connected to just how responsible they are getting up early and working late. That there's something that begins to creep up on an individual, and they begin to realize, yeah, I'm a hard worker, but my life doesn't, isn't fully explained by just hard working. There's something else going on in my life. I am blessed beyond my obedience. I am blessed beyond my diligence. I could truly say that as I stand before you. But I'm speaking about the non-Christian. The non-Christian is aware that there is some sort of invisible hand guiding their life. Some sort of way in which life is... um, there's a consistency to this life. There's a reliability to this life. And yes, we can include deep and terrible things. But they are, there is an awareness of the knowledge of God. And in our particular, you know, sort of our Western culture, we are aware of the, the many, many uh, benefits that we have, and we can't attribute those to just our own hard work. And I think that in our conversations with people, this is what I'm just trying to set up for you today, in our conversations with people, it would be perfectly fine for you when you're thinking about talking to someone to just tell them what you observe about their life and to say this. I see that God is richly blessing your life. Direct them to the source of the blessing. Help them understand that this truly is a work of God, their life. And that will begin to set up a conversation of of what are are the other things that God does? What, What are the other things that what would it look like for me to believe in this God that you're, you're telling me about? So this is, these are sort of these pre-evangelism conversations. This is increasingly important in our day and age. So as we think about what's really going on here is that the Apostle Paul is preaching about the goodness of God to pagans. 
He is preaching about the consistency and goodness of God. And he's telling them over and over in various different ways that God has intended through these crops, through the food you enjoy, to make your heart happy. And he's seeking to break through, break through that that suspicion that may be there that is God all that good. By the way, the goodness of God uh, is something that we doubt. Uh, I don't know if you recall when Satan presented his plan in the garden and his plan was to undermine the goodness of God when he had a conversation with Eve. Has God said that you... But, and you can't eat that tree? He's, Satan, in one masterful sentence, moved the whole question to whether or not God is truthful and God is trustworthy because what is truly good is being withheld from you. And ever since, we as a human race have had a deep suspicion about the goodness of God. Satan does the same thing with Jesus when Jesus goes 40 days without eating. This is Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God and he, the Holy Spirit came falling upon him at his baptism and the voice from heaven said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father declared that this is my son who's becoming Isaiah's suffering servant. I am pleased with his role in life. I'm pleased that he, he is carrying on this redemptive mission. Forty days later, Satan shows up and says, and I'm in my little paraphrase here, Satan says, so you're the beloved son. Look at yourself. This is how the Father takes care of you. You keep trusting your father's goodness and he's going to kill you you better take charge of your life and make some bread out of these rocks jesus responds okay, that man shall not live by bread alone he responds by trusting in the goodness of his heavenly father right despite his circumstances the goodness of god is a marvelous theme in scripture and the goodness of God is what the apostle Paul presses upon these uh, folks in Lystra that God has been good to you by sending seasons of, of, of crops and of fruitful crops he's been faithful to you you've had a reliability a reliable universe a reliable way of looking at things and this does not come from the Greek mythological gods. We are on the subject of called, it's called general revelation. Your Bible is what's called special revelation. The Bible is special revelation. There's another kind of revelation, and that's called general revelation. And what God is doing to every individual on this earth is he's communicating, he's communicating 
his basic attributes, aspects of himself that are made clear to everyone. He is communicating. Paul says here in uh, verse 16, uh, he says that God has not left, has not, uh, has not failed to give or provide a witness to himself. Through the regular uh, bounty of crops, God is testifying, giving us knowledge about himself. Now, recently, uh, general revelation is, uh, is something that God uses to speak to every individual. When you look up at the stars at night, Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their message is going out to the whole earth. Looking up at a star is not by itself uh, just a, uh, something to do. It's, it, it is a deeply, um, it's, a, it's a, a communicative experience. God is speaking to us through the heavens. God is communicating to us through the heavens. So when we think about it, God is already providing a witness to every individual about himself. And this knowledge is already within a person. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So when you think about it, the, the scriptures are affirming that general revelation is going out to everyone through what has been made. So we didn't come across just any old star. That star is always communicating something about God's person. It's pretty remarkable. And so in this passage, we have the Apostle Paul encouraging, exhorting these who don't believe to begin the process of understanding that it's God's goodness and his faithfulness that has brought them to this place in life. I'm going to just close, and I want to just sort of give you a, uh, I want to give you a little bit of a soak in Scripture for a little bit, and then I'm going to, then we'll, uh, we'll go on to the Lord's Supper here. Um, I don't you remember David in Psalm 23, uh, perhaps the most famous psalm. David's reflecting on God's goodness, isn't he? And then he says something that's, uh, that's so memorable, surely Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David reflected on the character of God and the subject of goodness came up. The subject of goodness is what the Apostle Paul preaches to these in Lystra. Goodness is a remarkable theme in the Bible. It's explaining to us that God is patient, he is kind, and he he is communicating his forbearance, his long suffering. Goodness looks like this.
Give thanks to the Lord, Psalm 136, for his goodness and his love endures forever. Psalm 78, yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his wrath. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Lamentations 3.22, his compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness. The Bible is filled with affirmations of God's goodness and his steadfast love. Psalm 36 says that your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 89, verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Joshua 23, Joshua reflecting on his life, and now he's in the promised land, and he says this, every promise has been fulfilled, not one has failed. David, of course, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When Jesus was facing the awful specter of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, uh, he cried out that this cup would this cup pass away from me? Could some other way be devised to redeem mankind? Father, if it is your will, could, could this cup pass away from me? And then there's this remarkable transition where he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And in that beautiful transition, Jesus as our Redeemer trusts in the goodness of his Heavenly Father. We come before the table today 